Well, I'm not going to be able to say anything better than what Doug just said, so y'all, y'all need to go on home. That's okay. <laughs> Good evening, and thank you all so much for having us over this evening. Uh, it's been just an incredible blessing that we never even saw coming three and a half, four years ago whenever we first came and met with the missions committee here at Mount Juliet and first had the opportunity to partner with y'all in the work down there in Cusco. And uh, I wanted to first off make sure that you all knew that your brothers and sisters in the Iglesia de Cristo Ayu down there in Cusco, 4,000 miles away, wanted to send their love and their thanks to all of you <coughs> for your unwavering support for the last three and a half years. Uh, you guys are making a huge difference, even though you haven't met any of these people face to face, you're making a huge difference in their lives, uh, specifically on the path to Christ. This evening, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, I will be sharing with you a small portion of what's going on in the work in Cusco. But first off, we're going to spend time in the Word of God tonight. We're going to do an old-fashioned sermon. So a missionary getting up here and not doing a full missions presentation. We're going to spend time in the Word of God. And uh, we're going to spend time at the end of our time together tonight, uh, going over a little bit about what's going on in the work in Cusco this evening. So as you can see, I'm about to be the most popular person in the room. I put a Twix jar bar, or Twix bars in a jar up here on the podium. And what we're going to do is we're going to play a little game together. So if you'd like to participate, you can either get out a piece of paper, open up a note app on your smartphone, or just keep the answers in your head. And I've got three questions that we're going to go over real quick as an interactive portion of our lesson to start off this evening. For those of you that can't see the Twix bars in the jar up here on the podium, I've got a picture of them on the screen. And so what I want to do first is I want to ask you to either take out that piece of paper, open up the note on your phone, or keep it in your head. Estimate the number of Twix bars that you think are in this jar. They're the miniature Twix bars. They're all the same size. I'm not trying to pull one over on you or anything. But take just a couple of seconds and figure out how many Twix bars you think are in that jar. <clears throat> Now that everybody's had just a few seconds to take a guess as to how many are in that jar, there are 41 Twix bars in that jar. Now how many of y'all got close with your answers? Raise your hand. How, okay, keep your hands up. Did you get within 10? <clears throat> within 5? Anybody get dead on? We got two or three. Okay. So anyway, there are 41 Twix bars in this jar, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to make the long walk down to hand this out as a gift, but <clears throat> if you'd like, we can uh, lower that number to 40 afterwards, and I'll give you a treat. Okay. Question number two in our game is this. Who is your favorite musical artist? Your favorite solo artist, musician? You can interpret this how you will, but who is your favorite musical artist? And you can write that answer down or keep it in your head. And I'll give you a couple seconds to think about this one as well. <clears throat> All right, now that you've had a, just a couple of seconds here to consider this, I'm going to tell you the correct answers to this question as well. You could have chosen, among others, Coldplay, James Bay, or Leon Bridges. And if you put these answers down on your piece of paper or thought this in your head, then you are 100% correct in the answer of who your favorite singer is. Otherwise, you're 100% wrong. But that's not a very fair question, is it? When it comes to our favorite singers, there's no right or wrong answer because it's a matter of personal preference. It's a matter of taste. It's purely subjective to each person. So that brings us to our third and final question of this game at the beginning of our time together this evening, and that's this question. When you decide what to believe in terms of your faith, is that process more like determining the correct number of Twix bars in this jar on the podium here, or is it more like choosing your favorite singer? 
Now, some people are going to say that uh, choosing your faith or deciding what to believe in is more like choosing your favorite singer. It should be a matter of personal preference. It should be a decision you make based on how you feel on the inside. It should be based on your, pres on your personal preferences, what feels right to you. On the other side of that coin, there are others that are going to say that that decision should be more like guessing or determining the number of Twix bars in that jar. It should be based on, a, on a, an estimation of the facts and of the evidence that you have before you. And so I wanted to start off our time together this evening because there is a, doing this activity because there's a disturbing belief trend that is sweeping all across not only the United States but the world as a whole back, and I can say this now, back home in Cusco, Peru, that is sweeping across our society as a whole and it's changing the way that people fundamentally view the world around them. So this evening we're going to talk about the concept of truth. And more specifically we're going to talk about the idea of relative truth versus absolute truth. And just by way of definition, relative truth more or less is a, is a saying that says there could be millions of different valid beliefs relative to any single concept under consideration. But on the other hand, absolute truth says that when it comes to the facts, there is one correct answer about a given topic because we're basing it on the facts and on the evidence. And that single answer doesn't change just because I have a personal belief that that answer is different than the fact. So in our example, it's very easy to see where I'm going with this. The number of Twix bars in this jar is an absolute truth. It's a fact. The number of Twix bars isn't going to change unless I take a number of the bars out or I add more to the jar. And what I personally believe or guess as far as the number of Twix bars is in that jar, what my belief is doesn't actually affect how many Twix bars are in the jar because it's a fact. On the other hand, choosing your favorite singer or artist isn't based on Ryan's personal preferences. It's based on the personal preferences of each individual person. It's a matter of taste. It's relative to each individual person. But the disconnect that we see so oftentimes in our society today is that people don't apply the same logic to their faith. Think with me for a moment in the past about your own faith decision, or if you haven't come to that decision yet, think about the decision of your own faith. When you made that decision about what to believe in, about whom to follow, did you make that decision more like making the decision about how many Twix bars were in the jar, or did you make that decision about your faith more like choosing your favorite singer? That's to say, did you make that decision based on an absolute truth or on a relative truth? And so it's obvious that our society is changing quickly because for thousands of years in the past, society has been fundamentally or has been founded on the fundamental idea that there are truths, universal truths that guide the universe. But now relative truth is becoming that new worldview. You may have heard this or I know for a fact that you all have heard this if you listen to the TV at all. The popular thing to say or to claim in our society today goes something like this. We can't really know what truth is. Truth is in the mind of each individual person and what's true for me may not be true for someone else and that's okay because everybody should have the right to believe what they want to believe and to interpret truth as they want to. And from a, an outside standpoint, that sounds absolutely wonderful, doesn't it? It sounds wonderful because it means everybody has the freedom to choose what they want to do. Everyone's going to coexist peacefully. No one's going to try to force their opinions on me, make me believe that I'm right and, or that they're right and I'm wrong or vice versa. When we think about it from a societal standpoint, there's not much more of a humble way that we could ever hope to approach life. But the disconnect comes when we talk about this in terms of faith. I want you to consider with me for a moment the quote from a famous preacher named Tim Keller when he said this, to say there is no absolute truth is in fact to give a truth absolutely. Think about that for a moment. 
To say there is no absolute truth is itself a statement of absolutes. It's inconsistent to say then that there is no such thing as absolute truth or to say that all truth is relative. In one simple statement, Timothy Keller here takes this concept that's so popular and it's sweeping across our society, changing the way people view things, and he shows us the flaws in this way of thinking because when we're talking about truth, to say that it's relative is inconsistent. It goes against the very definition of truth. Think about the example of what the Nazis did in Germany in the wake of the Great Depression in the 1930s and 1940s. World War II, as we all know, was waged because Nazi Germany was trying to conquer the rest of Europe and it was waged against the atrocities that they were committing against different minority groups like the Jewish people. So the rest of the world, they reacted to the Nazis and what they were doing out of a shared belief in the absolute truth of right and wrong. So a number of countries joined together and defeated the Nazi regime and they put an end to the atrocities that they were committing against these minority groups. But if we think about it from the way our society views things today, what if the Nazis, or if the rest of the world had responded to the Nazis by saying, well, you know, I may not agree that what the Nazis are doing is right. I may not believe that their, their killing of the Jewish people in pursuit of genetic purity is right, but who am I to tell them what's right? Because what's true for me may not be true for them, and that's okay, so I'm going to have to go on allowing them to do the things they're doing, kill the Jewish people out of mutual tolerance. If we think about it in the idea of our society today, and you think about it in terms of whether people, if people applied relative truth to laws, and they could all just determine to, based on their personal preferences, to follow a law or not to follow a law based on how they felt about the issue. Or what if our teachers in schools, and this is almost happening in some instances, what if teachers in our schools couldn't teach their children what one plus one equals? Because while there is a good contingency of kids that believes it does equal two, there's a group over here that believes it equals three with all of their heart and who in the world are we to tell them that they're wrong about that idea. So when we think about it that way, it's easy to see that the belief in relative truth is self-contradictory, it's inconsistent. There's a famous preacher also named John Piper who once said this. He says, the claim that there's no one standard for truth and falsehood that's valid for all people or for everyone is rooted most deeply in the desire of the fallen human mind to be free from all authority and to enjoy the exaltation of self. And while you understand just as well as I do that all people that claim relative truth, they don't necessarily have bad intentions behind that claim, John Piper and many others would agree that we all have something very major to be gained by believing that truth is relative. Because if I say that truth is relative and that there's no one standard of truth for everyone, then I've essentially said that I myself am free to determine what is right and what is wrong. So then we can say this, belief in relative truth is a declaration that my preferences are more important than truth. And if we believe then that God is truth, then I'm saying that my preferences are more important than God. So making relative, or truth relative to each person means that we refuse to submit to a God who is universal and absolute truth. John Piper also adds this. He says, if he or God exists, then he is absolute truth. And we must yield to him and we must define good and bad, right and wrong, beautiful and ugly, true and false, wise and foolish. And he says, our very selves according to him and not according to us. He says, God is the measure of all things, not man. 
So when we believe in relative truth, we're making ourselves the ultimate moral and religious decision makers in the world. If I say that all truth is relative, then I've placed truth as I see it above truth as God created it. I've placed my own worldview in that moment above God's. In that moment, I have become my own idol, making myself more important than God. So maybe after, after hearing me talk for just a minute and after thinking about this concept of truth, maybe you do happen to accept the idea that absolute truth exists and that relative truth is self-contradictory when it comes to morality, but isn't everyone allowed to believe what they want to religiously? Isn't everyone's way to God just as valid as anybody else's way to God? And if so, should we as Christians even be trying to go out there and evangelize and persuade people that we have found something that they haven't had a chance to find yet in truth? But before we go forward, I want to stop for a minute and I want to see how this applies to religious beliefs because this is the part of the lesson that if you haven't heard anything else, please focus in on this part because this is key for us in our society today. Because even though you may not explicitly say that I do believe in relative truth, it's very likely already started to creep in in ways you wouldn't notice in your everyday way of thinking. I think that one reason that we're also afraid sometimes to share our faith as Christians is because we're starting to believe what others are telling us, that to share our faith with others, to say that we have something that others don't have would make us intolerant, unloving, judgmental, and arrogant people. Now, when it comes to religion and faith, one thing that everyone in the world can agree on is that fundamentally all kinds of religious uh, religions claim to have truth. And Christianity is no different in this concept. We claim to have the one source of truth. You all know the passage in John 8, 31 and 32 when Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Again, in John 17, we find the scene of Jesus praying to the Father on behalf of his disciples, and he says to them, Father, sanctify them by the truth, because your word is truth. But there are other religions out there that claim to have absolute truth as well, and as an example, we'll take the Islamic faith. Islam and Christianity do have one major thing in common, and that's that they both teach that Jesus was a masterful teacher on earth. But then there's one major difference in what the Quran teaches about who Jesus was and who the Bible teaches that Jesus was. Because the Bible, as we all know, teaches that Jesus was and still is the very Son of God that came to earth for us. But the Quran, on the other hand, teaches that Jesus was nothing more than a messenger of God here on earth. In an English translation of the Quran by a scholar named Yusuf Ali in chapter 5, verse 75, this is a quote. It says that Christ, the son of Mary, was no more than a messenger. Many were the messengers that passed away before him. So the Islamic faith undoubtedly teaches that Jesus was a human messenger of God, but not God himself. And here's where we run into the dilemma, because if we believe there is one God, if we believe that he has absolute truth, then the Quran and the Bible cannot both be right at the same time regarding who Jesus was. One of them has to be wrong. Either Jesus was and still is the very Son of God, or he wasn't. But the decision we have to make in society today is that we have to choose, because it has to be one or the other. <clears throat> and we can see this same thing happening in almost every world religion out there. Catholicism, Judaism, Buddhism, whatever religion it is, all of these faiths claim truth, but each one teaches things that contradict the other faiths. And what we have to face today is that the Bible is no different in this regard because Christianity, the Bible, Jesus Christ himself claimed to be absolute truth 
And if they are absolute truth, then we have to react to the Bible's claim that Jesus is, in fact, the only way to salvation. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we can be saved, or we must be saved. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And that's probably the most radical claim that our Lord Jesus Christ ever made while here on earth. He says explicitly in this passage that he is the only truth, he's the only way to salvation, he's the only way to heaven. So if we put it in simple terms, if we follow Christ, then we are, as Christians, rejecting all other proposed ways to salvation. Because being a Christian is, by definition, a declaration that I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. So either Christianity is true or it is not true, but we have to make a decision about that. In 1 Thessalonians 5.20, Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica, he says, Do not treat the prophecies with contempt, but test them all and hold on to what is good. And in the same way, I think we can apply this in our modern context, because in the same way, we as Christians, and this is difficult for all of us, we shouldn't treat other worldviews with contempt, but we should test all things, like Paul says, and hold on to what's good. And so many of us here, even tonight, have tested different religions, have tested different faiths, have gone down different roads in life, but when we finally came to know Jesus Christ, we found consistency in his teachings, we found truth. But if Christianity does hold absolute truth, then why in the world aren't more people attracted to it? Why aren't more people Christians? And as a third and final quote from Dr. John Piper, he gets below the root of the issue and he says this, There is one reason why God and his church are so unpopular. He says they represent absolute claims on people's minds and their wills and their emotions. If God exists, then we are not God. If God is true, then we cannot decide what is true. It's out of our hands. We have no say in it, no vote. And I love what he says at the end. He says the universe is terribly old-fashioned. It's not a democracy. It's an absolute monarchy. So many people claim relative truth because it frees them from the authority of God. If I say that we can't really know truth, so what's true for me is okay, and what's true for you, and that's okay too, then all of a sudden, I'm trying to decide what truth is. All of a sudden, I've let my own personal beliefs take precedence over God's absolute truth. All of a sudden, I have made myself God. I've become my own idol. So relative truth is transforming the way that our society views the world today. But since we do believe that God is the absolute truth, and I think the key question for us as we transition toward the end of our sermon portion of the lesson tonight, what I think is key for us is that we have to answer this question. How in the world do we as Christians relate to people of other worldviews when we hold such an exclusive worldview like the Bible? Again, in John 14, 6, obviously we believe Jesus' claim that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. But how in the world as Christians can we be a viable part of society when we hold such an exclusive worldview like this? And if you haven't heard anything else that I've said this evening, please listen to this now. Because when we talk about the interactions that we as Christians should, not always do, but the interactions that we should have with people of other worldviews and other faiths, I want you to remember three things for me tonight. And if you like to take notes during lessons, this would be a good portion of the time to take some notes. The first thing that we need to know is that God calls us to share our faith. 
And we're not talking just about the collective body of believers. And I'm calling myself out personally on this one because so many times in the past I've heard lessons that have pricked my heart about evangelism, going out into the world and teaching others. But I take that great commission to be a church-wide commandment and I don't let it become a personal commandment. But God made that commandment just as much to each and every one of us individually as he ever made it to his church as a whole. We are to be his hands and feet on earth sharing the gospel with others. Number two, when we do share our faith, we must approach others with humility. Now, I absolutely love what a famous preacher named D.T. Niles once said. He said this, Christianity is simply one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. So as Christians, we are all those beggars out in the world, could do nothing for ourselves, had no way to feed ourselves, no way to have life in and of ourselves. And by the grace of God, we came to found the bread of life. We came to know Christ. And in that moment, we as Christians, as beggars in this world, who only have what we have by the grace of God, we should be telling people, hey, Come over here and find out the same thing that I found. Come and share this bread with me because it is the only thing that is giving me life. <clears throat> so as Christians, we're not superior. We're not enlightened compared to the world around us. We're just sinful people who by the grace of God came to know Christ. So as Christians, we are not perfect. We're redeemed. We're not perfect as Christians. We are simply redeemed by Christ. We're sinful people trying to show others the one thing that made a difference in our lives, the one way and the truth and the life, Jesus Christ. And third, when we do share our faith, we must speak that truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. And so many of our brothers and sisters, including me at times in the past, so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church have done so much damage over the years because we've all been shouting our faith rather than speaking it in love, without speaking it with the love of Jesus in our hearts. We've been bulldozing the beliefs of other people. So just because we happen to disagree with other people when it comes to faith and religion, and just because we believe that Jesus is the only way, that does not mean that we shouldn't love and we shouldn't respect people who adhere to other worldviews and other religions. And I'll try to make this next portion quick because we're transitioning now to tell you a little bit about the work in Cusco. So talking about speaking that truth in love, talking about doing that in a foreign country, it's a daily practice for your brothers and sisters in the Church of Christ in Cusco, Peru. And our mission team in Cusco has been trying for years now to work with the church in Cusco, and we're trying our best to be those beggars, trying to share the bread of life with other people. And we found that bread of life in the Word of God. So as we transition to the second portion and much briefer portion of our time together this evening, I'd love to share with you some of the amazing things that God's been doing in the church in Cusco in 2016. And as Doug mentioned before, uh, my wife and Sarah and I moved to Cusco in September of 2014, and we joined a team of people working there that had planted a church in the city just a couple of years before. And uh, uh, unfortunately, Sarah could not be with me tonight. As Doug mentioned, she is seven and a half months pregnant and that stretch on I-40 from North Carolina to here just got a lot more difficult for her. So she is resting and being well taken care of by her family at home. And so please do be praying for our little boy that's expected on the 15th of December. The church in Cusco, however, with our mission team there has grown tremendously in just the last six years. And Cusco is an absolutely gorgeous city. It's located on the west coast of South America. <coughs> It's located in the Andes Mountains at an elevation of about 12,000 feet. 
Our team originally chose to plant a church in Cusco because the Andean mountain region of Cusco, Peru, or of South America in general, is one of the least evangelized areas of the world by the churches of Christ. Just to put it in perspective, the city of Cusco itself has 500,000 people. There are 1.2 million people that live in the surrounding region, but there are fewer than 300 New Testament Christians in Cusco tonight. That's half of this auditorium. There are fewer than 300 New Testament Christians in Cusco today. We're surrounded there in Cusco by breathtaking mountains. The city's historical downtown area has beautifully preserved Spanish colonial architecture and ancient Incan architecture. But with all of this natural beauty and culture surrounding Cusco, a lot of the people there still live in extreme poverty. Now culturally, Cusco has one of the most well-preserved indigenous populations in the entire world. And while the primary language in Cusco and in Peru in general is Spanish, about 8 million people in the country speak a native language called Quechua. Religiously, about 80% of Cuscanos, the people of Cusco, claim to be Catholic, but they oftentimes mix in some of the mystic ancient beliefs from their Incan heritage into their Catholicism. So we on the mission team there in Cusco, we found that Cuscanian people are very receptive to the gospel. And since the church was established six years ago, we've grown to nearly 120 people worshiping with us at the church there every Sunday. We have had 110 individuals who have named the name of Christ and put on Christ in baptism, including 19 so far this year. And we currently have an average of about 80 people that are attending the nine Bible study groups that meet all across the city every single week. So if it's not obvious to you, if it wasn't obvious to you before, I hope it's obvious to you now that the Lord is blessing the church in Cusco with some incredible growth. So now that you've had a little reintroduction to Cusco, I want to briefly share with you the fact that our team, and this is something very important to remember about what we try to do in Cusco, is we try to be very strategic and very intentional about everything we do in Cusco. Our mission team has defined, there's another baptism, our mission team uh, guides the work that we're doing in Cusco with five goals, five overarching goals that we have for the work there and for the church there. And I want to briefly go over those with you now. And then for the lack of time that we have, I'm going to focus in on the final three, which uh, has been more of a focus for our team this past year. Goal number one, obviously we want to bring the lost of all socioeconomic classes to faith in Christ, but we're going to be targeting heads of households in an effort to reach whole families that can come in and make up the church. And we know how important it is to have whole family units to have a spiritually self-sustaining and solid foundation for the church there in Cusco. Goal number two is eventually we want to incorporate these new believers into a dynamic local congregation that's self-sustaining with 300 to 500 members. Goal number three is we want to raise up national leadership that means local Peruvian leadership composed of elders, deacons, evangelists, teachers, and ministry leaders. It's absolutely imperative that we have leaders in Cusco for the church long after we as a mission team leave. Goal number four is at an appropriate time we're going to secure a permanent church building that's attractive to all classes of people and it needs to be accessible. It needs to be in a centralized area of the city at a well-known address so that the church can become a staple in the community. Finally, goal number five, and one that's really exciting for me, before the entire team of American missionaries leaves the field, we plan to help the local church members plant another congregation in the city. For the lack of time, since we have such a limited amount of time left, as I said, we're going to focus on goals three, four, and five very briefly. And so going back to our list of the five overarching goals, goal three focuses our team on developing leaders in the congregation. 
And something that's very important for the work in Cusco, specifically there in Cusco, is that we as a mission team, we didn't move down to the field for an indefinite amount of time because we believe with the church in Cusco that it's very important that the American missionaries have an exit strategy. That means that slowly but surely over the course of a time period, the missionaries are going to return to Cusco and we're going to hopefully leave behind leaders that will be able to take that church into the next generation. Not having an exit strategy, in our opinion there in Cusco, would create an unhealthy environment where the church members could become spiritually and financially dependent on the missionaries for their spiritual survival. If we as missionaries shouldered every responsibility for ourselves, it would be a lot like a parent who very lovingly does everything for their child instead of teaching their child how to do it for him or herself. Like I've said many times before, and as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, we want to be able to train others to do the work of the church so that they, in turn, can train others. And talking about our future church leadership, some of you may remember the presentation that I was able to make for you last year, and I showed three different videos of some of our members in Cusco and what they're doing in their future plans there. Some of you may remember these three individuals last year, Elvis and his wife Yolanda on the left there, and then their friend Percy. And these two, Elvis and Percy, are members of the church in Cusco that have a very, very big dream to come back and to be the first ministers of the Church of Christ locally in Cusco. So in January of this year, they left for the Baxter Institute of Biblical Studies in Honduras to begin a four-year, very rigorous training program in theology and ministry with the goal of coming back in another three years or so to be the first ministers of the church in Cusco. So everything for them at the institute there in Honduras is going wonderfully. They're having a wonderful time. Their academic program is rigorous, but they also have a lot of opportunities every weekend to visit other congregations in the cities around the Baxter Institute and to go work with those cities and to put what they're learning in the classes into practice in a real situation. On the weekends, Elvis and Percy go to different congregations across the entire country, sometimes traveling as far as three hours to be with the congregation and to preach and to work with them on the weekends. Elvis's wife, Yolanda, has been absolutely developing a passion for children's ministry there in Cusco and she is excited to come back to Cusco in a few years and to implement some of the things that she's been learning to broaden and to organize our children's program in Cusco. So the three of them, they're in, in Baxter, in Honduras, and they're going to come back and visit the church in Cusco in December. But the three of them are all the time. They're talking about their passion to evangelize the city and how when they return to Cusco, they cannot wait to help the congregation start planning for this next church plant in the future. So we're very, very pleased as missionaries and as our supporting churches to, to know that they're learning so much and we're excited to know what they're experiencing so far. So if you're taking down prayer requests tonight, please keep Elvis, Yolanda, and Percy in your prayers on a daily basis because they are very much, far more than we as missionaries are, they're very much the future of the church there in Cusco. And I believe with all my heart that these three are going to be absolutely unstoppable when they come back to work with the church in the future. But while Elvis and Percy have been off at Baxter over the last couple of years, or the last year, I specifically have been working one-on-one -on -one with a group of men in the church to help develop them to become our future preachers and ministry, or worship leaders on Sundays. But two of those young men named Conrad and Diego have especially stood out to me, and I want to briefly introduce those to you before we close. I've been spending a lot of time discipling and working one-on-one -on -one with these two individuals, and I can honestly say that while they are my brothers in Christ, they have become also some of my very best friends down there in Cusco. First off, Conrad. From the very first moment that I sat down and met with him, 
I knew that he had the potential to be an incredible leader in the church, that he had that rare combination of someone with a very open heart, but someone also who had a desire to rightly divide the word of truth, as Paul tells young Timothy. After studying the Bible with me for a few weeks, Conrad made the decision to become a Christian on, on April 22nd of this year, the very same night that his, his mother and his sister also put on Christ in baptism after studying with my wife, Sarah. And so I know that the angels in heaven were rejoicing that night because another whole family of believers put on Christ in baptism. And then two months later, as I was studying with Conrad, uh, with some of our further Bible studies, he started to ask me some questions about why in the world I had moved halfway across the globe uh, to become a missionary in a foreign country. And I didn't have a very compelling answer. I just said I felt the call to, to go and preach the gospel to a group of people who hadn't had the chance to hear it yet. And without any prompting from me, he said, Ryan, I feel that too. So I decided in that moment to take the opportunity, leap out on faith, and I wanted to talk to him about the opportunities available at the church. I wanted to talk to him about the leadership pathway, our discipleship training program, talk to him about the opportunities to lead the church on Sundays. And so I asked him if he'd be willing to do one of our very short two or three minute Lord's Supper talks. And he had immediately and enthusiastically accepted that challenge. And so we worked on his Lord's Supper talk and before long, he had done a fantastic job that first time and he's led the church in the Lord's Supper talks on multiple occasions. So after he had gotten to that point, I decided to take another leap of faith. And I asked him one afternoon if he would be interested in preaching for us on a Sunday morning. And again, he didn't blink an eye. He immediately accepted that challenge. And so over the course of the next month or two, he and I met a couple of times a week and we worked on his very first sermon that was called The Power of Prayer and Fasting. And Conrad did a fantastic job up there in the pulpit. And one thing that I remember is uh, we always do practice runs with the sermons for the men that we're training to preach on Sundays. And we do that on the Saturday before they preach on Sunday. And I remember Conrad, he just finished his last practice run and he immediately afterwards, he said, Ryan, was everything, you know, was that correct? Was everything I said correct? And I, I thought in my head, you know, is he talking about, well, Ryan, did I incorporate all of the wonderful suggestions you gave me? Or Ryan, did I, did I deliver that sermon well? But he said, no, I'm talking about, did I say everything doctrinally correct? And that's the kind of guy that Conrad is, both as an individual and as a seeker of the truth, because for me as a missionary, hearing his sincerity in that moment just meant the absolute world to me. And that's just the kind of guy that Conrad is, and not many new Christians ask that kind of question. This is kind of neat too, because of his own accord a few weeks later, we were having a, a big luncheon at the church to get more people into our Bible study groups. And since Elvis and Percy had left months before to go to their ministry training at Baxter, we had been looking for someone to step in and take their role in leading our young college and high school age Bible study group there at the church. And without any talking to me before, at that seminar, at that luncheon, Conrad stepped up and volunteered to restart that group with our young people and to lead that group on a weekly basis. And so when I get back to Cusco, I'll be helping to continue to train him, working on his lessons every week as he leads a very important part of our church into the future. The other guy I want to introduce you to is Diego. We met Diego three years ago when he showed up on our annual medical mission campaign, and I'll, I'll tell you about the dates for that one in just a moment. He has uh, excellent English, and so he was a huge help to our campaign, translating between the patients and the doctors and nurses that come down to help us on that campaign. But the thing is, he thought it was supposed to be a paid position. I don't know who told him that a mission work was going to give him a paid position to translate, but he showed up expecting to be paid, and when we told him it was volunteer, for some reason, he decided to stay on and help us. 
So throughout that week, we tried to get him uh, to agree to do a one-on-one -on -one Bible study or to visit us at church, but he would always just shoot us down. And a couple weeks later, after that first campaign, we found out why. A couple years before, uh, Diego uh, had turned to atheism. He had spent many years of his life, although he's a young guy, he'd spent many years of his life searching out for truth, looking at other religions, testing other faiths, and none of it made sense to him. And so he had just given up altogether on the idea of God. But another year of the medical campaign came and went, and he spent more time with those 50 people that come down from the United States every year. And we started to see that the, the, the influence of those medical campaigners started to leave a mark on Diego. So another year passed. When he came back finally for that third medical campaign, just in 2015, we started to finally see a change in Diego's heart. And so at the end of that week, he agreed to study the Bible with my teammate, Gary Reeves. And at the end of that week, Diego put on Christ in baptism and he has not looked back since. I specifically began working with Diego earlier this year and he has now preached for us at the church there on multiple occasions and he's consistently leading wonderful Lord's Supper talks. And while we do not have, I promise you, a clown ministry at the Church of Christ in Cusco, he is excellent with kids and he has been such an incredible asset with our children's program that we're trying to grow so much on a regular basis. So every time that Diego gets up into the pulpit, not with the red nose, I promise, but every time he gets up into the pulpit, we're always so excited to see what he's going to bring to the table and how he's going to share the word with us. So if you're adding to that prayer list, please keep these two young men, Conrad and Diego, in your prayers. And then these last two points we'll go through very quickly. Goal number four of those five overarching goals in the Cusco mission, it's all about establishing the congregation in Cusco through an approach that's been highly effective all across Latin America, and that is to secure a permanent property and facility for the church. So over the past six years, God has been richly blessing the IU congregation in Cusco with such growth, such progress toward goals one, two, and three. So now it's time for us to look to the future to when we're going to secure a permanent property and facility so that the church in Cusco has a permanent place to call home. We're currently packing our auditorium to capacity almost every Sunday, as you can see on the screen there, and it's in our rented facility. So now we have to prepare for the next step. We have to prepare for a permanent larger facility so that the size of our location no longer halts our evangelism in the city. We need to prepare to bring more souls to the kingdom. And planting a large established church in the heart of, La of Cusco, it's absolutely vital in the Latin American cultural context. And becoming established with securing a building, that's a huge part of becoming legitimized in the community around us, so people will begin to take notice. On the other hand, while we have the big church concept there, becoming established with a permanent location, there are dozens of documented cases on the other side of that coin of small churches that either only met in houses or only ever were able to worship in rented facilities like we have now that have long since disappeared from the face of the planet because of a lack of permanence. So we believe with all our hearts that a permanent facility is absolutely key, not only to size, but to longevity for the church there in Cusco. When I come back to visit the church in Cusco 20, 30 years from now, what I want to find is I want to find a self-sustaining congregation that is out planting other congregations and evangelizing the city around them. Not a church that's long since disappeared from a lack of stability and permanence because they didn't have a place to meet. So we know that securing our own church property and building is going to require time, it's going to require money, and it's going to require a location that fits the vision of the Cusco Church. 
But the fact is that we're working in a third world country where the average person makes only about $250 per month. So while our members don't have the financial ability to achieve this project on their own, we believe that our goal is 100% participation from the members of the Cusco Church toward this project. That means that each and every one of the members of the church in Cusco has committed to giving sacrificially for the next two to three years as we raise money towards this project. And for months now, it's been really amazing to see in person. They've been dedicating themselves to prayer and to fasting, just like the church did 2,000 years ago in the Bible. And they have been taking this vision and making it their own. Our mantra at the congregation for months now has been that this building is not the end game. It's not the goal. It's not the destination. Our building is just a tool that we're going to use to reach the city of Cusco for the gospel. So now that we've come to this exciting milestone in the Cusco work, we need your help. Coming up this Saturday, and here's your first opportunity to be able to do so, if you're able to join us on Saturday, November 5th, this coming weekend, the Cusco Mission Team, along with the West 7th Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee, we're hosting what we're calling the Friends of the Cusco Church Middle Tennessee Breakfast Event, and I want to extend a formal invitation to each and every one of you here this evening. The event is going to be for the benefit of the Cusco Church to help your brothers and sisters in Cusco, Peru to secure a property for a permanent building there in Cusco. We'll have breakfast, we'll have a time of food and fellowship, and then I'll share with you a little bit more about this goal number four of securing a permanent location for the church in Cusco. And I want to share with you about this there because we want to help you understand how you can be involved even on an individual basis. We need the financial support of hundreds of our members of our supporting congregations in order to make this dream a reality. And so we're inviting members from churches throughout the Nashville, Columbia, and surrounding areas uh, to join us for this breakfast. And I'm hosting a series of about 10 of these uh, breakfast events throughout this uh, furlough that we're back home. So please come and join us if you're able to on Saturday, November 5th at the West 7th Church of Christ at 9 a.m. If you're not able to come to that, we will likely be live streaming the event the following weekend on November 12th, and you can find that on the Cusco Missions Facebook page. But we wanted to let you know that you can be involved. And if you aren't able to make it to the event, but you would still like to get involved and help us with the donation, go see uh, one of the elders or the mission committee members here, or go see Doug Perry, and we can get you some more information about that. And finally, and this will only take about one one more moment, goal number five. Returning to our list of those five overarching goals, this fifth goal keeps our church focused on the future, when our Peruvian members are going to go out into another area of the city and plant another congregation. And so it's pretty amazing for me. Uh, Obviously, I get excited about this stuff because I'm a missionary and I work down there. But it's exciting for me to think about a church that's only six years old already planning to plant another congregation in their community. From day one, the members of the church in Cusco knew that our collective goal as a church was to grow to three to five hundred people, but we're not growing just to grow. We're growing to that number so we can have a self-sustaining body that can go around and plant other churches throughout the region. This second church plant is only going to be led by Peruvian members, not the missionaries. We're going to help them, but they're going to be the ones spearheading the effort to plant another congregation. And so the church in Cusco is already feeling a real sense of urgency to plant that other congregation in the city. But I do want to emphasize as we close that 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 goal of a second church plant depends so heavily on us becoming established in the current congregation, both financially and spiritually, with this permanent property and building. So I hope after hearing everything this afternoon, this evening, you can see today that God has done some incredible things in Cusco in 2016. And we want all of you here at Mount Juliet to be an even bigger part of that work there in Cusco in 2017. 
So please continue to pray for Cusco, continue to support Cusco. And if you're not already receiving them, please shoot me an email at cuscomissions at estischurch.org. And we'll add you to our newsletter list that we send out every two months or so. And you can follow us hand in hand with what's going on in the church in Cusco. If you are also interested in coming down for an incredible medical campaign that we have every year, March 11th through 18th of this coming year, we'll have our sixth medical campaign. We normally have a group of 40 or 50 that come down. This last March, we had 1,800 patients come through the four-day clinic. So it's an incredible opportunity to evangelize the city because we missionaries and the church members in Cusco get to follow up and have Bible studies with many of those people. So if you can join us, please send me an email and ask for some more information, and I'd be happy to get that to you. So as we close tonight, I want to uh, remind us that we started off our time together talking about this concept of relative truth and absolute truth. And then I shared with you a little bit about the work in Cusco. But I want to close tonight by taking a moment to praise the congregation here at Mount Juliet. It's absolutely wonderful for me as a, a visiting missionary every year to come back and to get to spend time with a congregation that has not wavered to this fallacy that is relative truth. You've not given in to what people are telling you. You're standing firm for absolute truth. But what I'm even more proud of is that I'm part of an extended church family here at Mount Juliet that is actually going out there and is speaking the truth with the love of Jesus in their hearts. They're speaking the truth in love. But maybe for those of you who are Christians here tonight hearing this lesson, I want to ask you not to make the same mistake that I so often make, and you've heard this before, but please don't make the mistake that I so often make of hearing a lesson about evangelism, a lesson that maybe does prick your heart, and you think about it and it touches you, but then you only keep it in mind for the 15 minutes that you're here after the sermon's over at the worship. You get back into your daily routine, you get back into distractions, you get back into daily life, and you let those things slip without letting that heart prick that you felt at the worship service continue to guide your actions in the future. So I want to leave us with a question tonight. When was the last time that you, outside of the church here, when was the last time that you took a stand against relative truth? When was the last time that you even brought up something small in a passing conversation with a coworker, with a friend, a family member about your faith in Jesus Christ? Maybe you feel like you're on the entire other side of that coin tonight. Maybe you don't even feel like you're a part of the Christian community here. Maybe you are, are here tonight for the very first time and you're seeking truth in your life. And if that's the case and you've come into a church building, then I admire so much the strength you have, as Paul said, to test all things and to try to seek the truth. But what I want to do is I want to make a request of you tonight as well. You're not here by coincidence, so please don't leave. As you're seeking truth in your life, please don't leave this auditorium tonight without tapping somebody on the shoulder and asking to sit down and to find out a little bit more about this Jesus Christ and what he's all about and what his Bible has to say. Please don't leave here tonight without pulling someone aside and letting us have time to sit down and talk to you. So whatever your need happens to be tonight, we would love nothing more than to sit down and to help you with whatever that is. If you have any need, please come as we stand and as we sing.